Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with the first step on the renunciation of the world. And if you remember the first three steps uh, in Climacus's thought all have to do with the break of the world, the initial break from the world, especially that the monk would make. But I think also for us as we're entering in to the spiritual life more deeply. Certainly what John is saying to us here applies to our lives as well. You know, what is distinctive about the Christian life? And what does that mean in terms of our engagement with the world around us, the things that we expose ourselves to? Uh, how, do we, how do we look at that in the sense of the manner in which we discipline our, our life and the way that we engage in prayer, the kind of asceticism that we embrace. And I think this is becoming more and more important in our own day, uh, that there are so many things within the world uh, that uh, we are exposed to, that uh, living uh, the gospel fully and also uh, keeping kind of purity of heart in the midst of it can become more and more difficult. And in fact, there's one I mentioned in the last group of modern elders said that the, the youth who uh, maintain purity of heart in our day and age will have to have the virtue of the martyrs of old, have the faith of the martyrs of old, that to seek to live uh, in accord with all that leads to purity of heart, that one would have to guard the heart so closely and also have a kind of constancy in prayer uh, in order to be able to do that, simply because we are surrounded by so many things and we're in this constant state of receptivity. So our looking at uh, at the world and a break from the world, all those things that would be contrary to the will of God uh, uh, becomes essential for us. And uh, especially as we move further uh, here into the 21st century. So number 12, when the soul betrays itself and loses the blessed and longed for fervor, let it carefully investigate the reason for losing it. And let it arm itself with all its longing and zeal against whatever has caused this. For the former fervor can return only through the same door through which it was lost. So a good place for us to begin. Uh, We've already heard from John how important it is to enter into the spiritual life with zeal right from the beginning. And that uh, it is this zeal and fervor that we enter into the spiritual life that helps keep us moving forward in the times when we perhaps fall into a kind of laxity or negligence in the spiritual life. The memory of our former zealousness for the faith and the depth of our prayer will often draw us back, Uh, similar to, I think, a prayer role uh, and the way that it acts for us. But I think the memory of engaging fully in the spiritual life acts like that for us, that it brings to mind uh, the, the, the peace, the joy that uh, arises out of the ascetical life in terms of our intimacy with God. And sometimes it's that the memory of this that can draw us back into the spiritual life fully when we fall into laxity. But what he's saying here, I think is important that when we find ourselves losing that zeal, that we have to enter uh, back through the door that we exited. 
that we have to be able to look, look into our hearts and examine what it is that brought about the, the loss of zeal, what negligence or lukewarmness perhaps gave rise to it, what did we expose ourselves to that sort of weakened our resolve in some fashion. And so uh, being able to discern that and to analyze that in a bit, if you will, what was going on in the heart gives us our path back uh, into the, the spiritual life. And, uh, and so we can't, I think what John is telling us here, ignore the, the things that have contributed to our, our lack of zeal, that we have to be attentive to them, see how these things manifest themselves, and then what the remedy is that the, the fathers often will offer us in terms of overcoming uh, the things that drew us away from our intimacy with God or drew us into a particular passion. Number 13, the man who renounces the world from fear is like burning incense that begins with fragrance, but ends in smoke. He who leaves the world through hope of reward is like a millstone that always moves in the same way. But he who withdraws from the world out of love for God has obtained fire at the very outset, and like fire set to fuel, it soon kindles a larger fire. And so, again, in these next couple of paragraphs, he's going to be emphasizing uh, for us and sort of these allegorical interpretations of, of various things about how, again, how important that initial zeal for the Lord is, uh, that we do not want to enter into the spiritual life in a half-hearted way. And in a sense, that speaks to the, the love that we have with, for God within our, within our lives. And so he's not counseling that we uh, enter into the spiritual disciplines in an undiscerning fashion. Certainly, one would want to have a spiritual elder or guide to, to help us along that path. But there is to be a kind of fervor within the heart that is expressive of our desire for God. And if you remember, in so many of the past groups, we've talked about the importance of desire in the writings of the fathers, uh, that again and again, they hold it forward as an essential element uh, for us, uh, that we are not Stoics, that there is a longing uh, that we are to cultivate within the heart for God and the desire to share in the fullness of, of the life that is made possible for us. And so again and again here, we hear phrases like this, and like fire set to fuel, it soon kindles a larger fire. You know, when we enter into the spiritual life with a desire, with a, a longing for the Lord, God's grace adds to that, that longing within our heart. And so as we begin the spiritual life, uh, we don't want to do it in a haphazard way or, or lacking that zeal as if it is an avo avocation. You know, something that we sort of tack on to our life and all the other things that we do. Uh, it has to be uh, the center of our life uh, around which everything revolves, or uh, it has to be the beginning of all things for us that uh, shapes everything in our life. And when we try to, I think, embrace the spiritual life as one aspect among many, or one element among many things within our, our life, then the, this initial fervor is going to cool very quickly. Uh, because if we approach it simply like the things in the world, it's not going to be able to compete uh, with how the things of the world are put before us, you know, in the sense of stimulating the senses or, or, or the, our curiosity on some level. That for, for us, uh, as men and women of faith, we have to reach much deeper in the sense of uh, understanding uh, that this relationship with God is something that gives us our dignity and our identity, and that our destiny is caught up in how fully we enter into this reality. And uh, so it's not as though we're simply fostering an aptitude or a particular gift or talent that we might have as we do with so many different things, that this relationship with God stands above all things. And we really, you know, if we remember St. Theophan the Recluse, I think it was, who said that without faith, 
man is not man. That when we cut off this aspect of who we are, this relationship with God, we lose something fundamental to ourselves as human beings, that we've been created in the image and likeness of God. And so outside of the context of this relationship with him, we lose sight of who we are as, as human beings. We become, and some you know, fathers, you know, modern as well as ancient, will tell us that without prayer, we've become more animal, more beast than man. Than man. That being engaged in a prayer life, a deep prayer life, uh, connects us to that which uh, makes us most fully alive and, again, gives us our, our truest dignity, uh, that we are drawn into the very life of God himself. And in and through the, the revelation that we've received in Christ, we see that with even a, a greater fullness. We see what it is to live as a human being within this world and uh, where our true dignity is to be found. Uh, and most of all, in our obedience to God himself. And this is what we'll be reflecting upon, certainly as we enter into Holy Week. You know, we see Christ's thirst to fulfill the Father's will. And uh, this is his glory, uh, to do the Father's will, not to put himself forward. And this is his nourishment, is to do the Father's will. And similarly, within our life, that our relationship with God, fulfilling the commandments, living the life that he's called us to, is re really our glory as human beings. Uh, Maureen, did you type out a question? or? You haven't unmuted yourself. We can come back to you. Okay. Okay. All right. Any uh, comments or questions? Okay. So similarly in 14, uh, he puts forward another image here for us to reflect upon. And this, I have to be honest with you, took me a little bit longer to think about. I'm still not sure if I have real clarity about it. And I think we have to see it again, sort of in the context of what he's been doing here in order to uh, interpret it, I think. He writes, some build bricks upon stones, others set pillars on the bare ground. And there are some who go a short distance and having got their muscles and joints warm, go faster. Whoever can understand, let him understand this allegorical word. So it's tied intimately with the uh, paragraph 13. You know, those who are driven by fear you know, it's like incense, you know, that it quickly the, the sweet smell of it gives way simply to the smoke uh, that it produces. Uh, and those who have the hope for reward, it's self-centered. It's, uh, if you notice the foot, footnote here at the bottom of the page, that it's like going around a circle, grinding grain, that we're actually circling around our own desires, our ho own hopes for reward. It's really love that allows us to, to run swiftly. And the image he uses in the previous paragraph is that uh, it is like a, a fire to which we add fuel. Love adds fuel to that zeal for God. But here similarly in this, this paragraph, you know, it's talking about building and what we build our life upon and the swiftness with which we uh, uh, run in this life, that we can become very focused upon the things of this world and the building of our life, as it were, and giving it shape and stability, security. And so there are those who build their, their, their build up bricks on stone and then pillars uh, on the bare ground. Uh, but, but then there are those whose, once their muscles and joints get warmed up, then they begin to run faster. Whoever can understand this, let him understand. And so at first I was thinking, you know, is, is he, was he talking about building down to the bedrock? So building, you know, standing upon the rock itself as we, the image that we often hear within the scripture. But I think tied to the previous paragraph here, he's, I think he's talking more about allowing ourselves to be guided and driven by the inspiration of the spirit and not to squelch that uh, by, you know, this, you know, attentiveness to 
building something that seems secure and stable in our own minds. That we've talked in the past about this, looking at the spiritual life in such a way that it is something that we are building rather than allowing God to draw us into the mystery of his own life. And in fact, this is what the word revelation means. So when we break it down etymologically, revelare, to draw back, to pull back the veil, revelare. And so, you know, God gradually draws back the veil and draws us into the intimacy of his life. And so what we are to be most attentive to is the guidance and the movement of his spirit in this life and allowing ourselves to be drawn along uh, as the spirit guides us and at the pace at which the, the spirit guides us. And sometimes we will want to control, uh, you know, this reality in our life where we are constantly calculating in our mind what the cost of this is going to, to be for us or what it, what, it, what it will take from us to build, build this rather than allowing our, ourselves to uh, simply drop uh, what we hold on to for security and to follow Christ. And so it's always a fascinating thing, I think, when we reflect upon the gospel passage of the calling of the first apostles, uh, when they encounter he who is life and love, they find within them this capacity to drop everything at hand uh, and to detach themselves, as we'll see uh, in the uh, coming step as well, from everything in the world because of who it is that they have standing before, before them, he who is life. And so they can set aside that which, even though it may be good, is certainly much less than he who it is who stands before them. And we see it also in Christ's teaching in the gospel too. If you remember, uh, he calls various individuals and each of them comes up with an, an excuse of why they can't immediately respond, that they have just purchased a cow or they just got married or, uh, or have a farm or something that they have to attend to or bury their parents or something, you know, attend to certain matters. And it's striking, you know, the things that Christ will say, let the dead bury their dead, you come follow me, that he makes this extraordinary demand, which speaks to us about who he is for us. Whereas when we go back to the Old Testament, and we look at Elijah's call, for example, of Elisha, the same question, the, the same request is made, can I go back and kiss my parents goodbye. And if you remember, Elijah says to Elisha, go and do as you will, who am I to you? I think is the phrase, like, you know, I'm, uh, I may be a prophet, but I'm not God to you. So go back and do what you need to do in regards to your worldly affections, your parents, to say goodbye, goodbye to them. Whereas in the gospel, we have a manifestation of the identity of Christ in this really clear and powerful way that maybe we don't pick up on anymore because we've heard it so many different times uh, and that we sort of take it for granted. Okay, you know, that he calls them and they just drop everything immediately. And then we, we move on and listening as if that does not have significance for us personally. And I think we have to stop and pause and ask ourselves, you know, what are the ways that Christ might be calling us, even in, in any given moment, to drop everything and follow him, whether it's a call to prayer or to engage someone, uh, someone who's poor, who comes to us in need, or someone who's suffering from an illness, that our response to that call of Christ, that call of love, would be immediate. And, uh, and so when reading this last paragraph, these were some of the thoughts going through my mind. What, what might John be saying to us in terms of our initial zeal and fervor for the Lord? That we, we do not want to take hold of it in such a way that we, again, are being calculating or seeking to control it, to shape it in the way that we feel that it should be shaped or that our, our response to God, what it should look like. Because often in the course of our life, 
and I'm sure many of you have experienced this multiple times, many times over, what God calls us to do, uh, often will turn our world upside down. And sometimes it's not even until much later that we see the providential hand of God acting in those moments and what, what he was calling us to do and how, how he was calling us to respond to him. And uh, so th these are some of the things that, that I was thinking about. Eric Williams here put up a, a, a comment. Stone is built a building's foundation. Brick structures are built on top. Should pillars be put on bare earth? I don't know, but my guess is that doing so makes a structure vulnerable to ground eroding underneath. So we must start our ascent with a solid foundation for attempt to advance to ceases too quickly would invite disaster. We might ask ourselves how firm the ground is under our ladders. That's interesting, I think, and, and very thoughtful, you know, um, and I, th I think I was weary of going, trying to go too deep in it and to make what John was saying here uh, something that he wasn't saying. But I think what your interpretation of it here is actually very good. You know, how, how is it, how firm of a foundation is the ladder itself set upon, you know, upon the beginning of a thesis. But I think uh, still in reading it in light of the previous paragraph, you know, how centered on the self is our entrance into the spiritual life? And how far will that take us? And in the previous paragraph, he's telling us, you know, if we're like a millstone, we're going to be going around and around a circle. And our spiritual life, if it's focused upon ourselves, we are not going to be making an ascent at all. That Christ always has to be the focus of our attention, of our gaze. And this is how we continue to make our way up that ladder, not by focusing on what we are doing, even in the ascetical life, or how perfectly are we are doing that, or figuring out in our own minds what it is that we feel that we should be doing. It's really our response to a distinctive call that comes to us from, from Christ and the movement of that spirit within us. And we might begin our ascent of that ladder slowly, but once the, the muscles are warmed, and we enter into the ascetical life, we begin to experience and taste something of the joy of that reality. And this is what he will get to on the next page, a couple of paragraphs from now, that in the beginning, that movement of the ascetical life is very painful and can involve a great deal of suffering for us. But once we do get moving, and once we begin to see something of the fruit of that, then it begins to bring a kind of sweetness and joy to the spiritual life. And I think that's important for us to hold on to. And we've talked about this in previous groups about how we see in some of the fathers and Benedict's role in particular, but also in, in what we will find in John here, that asceticism should be, bear the fruit of joy for us because ultimately it brings us into a deeper intimacy with God, a setting aside of self and sin and anything that's an impediment to our entering into the fullness of that life. So our embrace of these spiritual practices should not weigh us down or make us feel gloomy. They may be hard for us at, at, at first because we are, the passions might be so deeply rooted within us that freeing ourselves from them uh, and unmooring ourselves from them may, may be difficult, but once we are freed from them, then the journey becomes something sweet and joyful for us because we see ourselves as moving towards Christ. So even the things that are difficult in the particular crosses that we carry or confront are embraced because of our understanding of where those things are leading, leading us. So Eric, I, I get what you're, you're saying. And, uh, you know, I, and on so many different levels, I, I think it's a good interpretation, but I'd like, this is where I'd like to follow John's thought a little bit further on in the coming paragraphs to see how he's, what picture he's painting for us for, here for us. He's drawing with broad strokes. And so I don't want to overinterpret some of these paragraphs for us and in order that we to, are in some way prevented from seeing the bigger picture. Uh, David Robles, Father, if a good foundation is love and chastity and innocence and fasting and temperance, 
which take time to learn, see number 10, right? How can we attain to that in the beginning to be used as a foundation? In other writings, love is the summit of the spiritual life, which is true with John as well. What kind or measure of love do we need at the beginning? How is that different from the kind of love that is our goal? Right, so what are the immediate goals in regards to love? It's a good question, uh, but I, I still think that he's speaking to us here in regards to our uh, the spiritual life being a response to a particular call, that we engage in the ascetical life, not simply as a human undertaking or the, an undertaking that is begins and initiates with us. We are responding to this call, greater call of love. And so I, I'm, you know, my real sense in reading this and as we go along in the, the further paragraphs is that love so much isn't the question here is as is our response to God at the very beginning and our focus upon God at the very beginning, that we don't enter into the spiritual and ascetical life in a self-centered fashion. And th that can always be a danger for us. You know, that again, we are looking for a particular reward or we're out, you know, trying to avoid something out of fear. Joseph, while I really love your interpretation of 14, Father, I thought at first it was good to build on stones, but your interpretation made me notice that the first two people are building structures, a stable dwelling place either way. Pillars are on bare ground might not be within building codes, but it would make a house anyway, whereas a third is running free. That is a that's a strange juxtaposition that is only illuminated by your explanation. Yeah, and I think this is where I, I stumbled and why I had to read it over and over again and pray about it because of the disconnect with the third image there, the running free. And, you know, maybe the image of Peter and John running to the tomb uh, might help us out a little bit too. You know, Peter is laboring under the burden and the weight of his betrayal of the Lord. And so he runs to the tomb carrying that, but he's passed by the swiftness of John who runs as a friend, who is being summoned. And he enters into the tomb. He, see, he doesn't enter the tomb, but he sees and he believes that there is something about the freedom and the swiftness of love that draws us, you know, that all these other reasons might be motivations and they might, and we don't need to look at them in a condescending way. Someone might begin with fear or even with the hope of reward. But I think what John is telling us here is the one who begins with love is already going to be running with a kind of swiftness toward Christ, entering into the spiritual life not building on something that is at first maybe appears to be the, the stronger foundation, you know, building with bricks or with pillars. You know, these are very human ways, I think, of looking at building, but what we are, are entering into is not a, a structure that we are building with our own hands. And in some ways requires us to let go of our sense of security and let go of our sense of self-identity and what it's rooted in and allow our, our identity to be shaped and revealed and formed to reveal to us and formed by, by Christ himself. And so we'll go on with the text. I, I don't want to belabor this much further here. Okay, Eric says, I don't mean to belabor the point, but you are. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, but, but I may have an insight as a runner. Attempting to run a race or a hard workout without warming up first could lead either to injury or poor performance. So this metaphor doesn't strike me as very different from the others. Well, I think part of what John is saying, though, is that a person might begin slow like this, uh, even when motivated by love. But very quickly, the muscles warm up and then they begin to run with a swiftness, whereas those who simply build you know, in, in 
in accord again with their own judgment of how things should be built are still going to be earthbound. They're going to be focused, their, their vision is going to be focused toward the ground, towards themselves and what they are building. And self-consciousness, you know, uh, in the spiritual life can do that to us. You know, I don't want to demonize that, but, you know, our, our focus upon the self in the spiritual life, and we see this even in prayer, how that it can distract us. You know, we'll get focused upon our own thoughts, things that we have to do, things that we have to accomplish, and constantly have to be bringing ourselves back to Christ. The movement from multiplicity to simplicity. And I think what John is telling us here is this, this movement away from this very human way of approaching things in this world, including the spiritual life, to allowing ourselves to be guided and directed by the spirit of love. Okay, but, you know, I'm not offering any kind of definitive interpretation here. So why don't we move on uh, to see what John says in some of the next paragraphs. Let us eagerly run our course as men called by our God and King, lest since our time is short, we be found in the day of our death without fruit and perish of hunger. Let us please the Lord as soldiers please their King, because we are required to give an exact account of our service after the campaign. Let us fear the Lord not less than we fear beast, for I have seen men who are going to steal and were not afraid of God, but hearing the barking of dogs, they at once turned back. And what the fear of God could not achieve was done by the fear of animals. Let us love God at least as much as we respect our friends. For I've often seen people who had offended God and were not in the least perturbed about it. And I've seen how those same people provoked their friends in some trifling matter and then employed every artifice, every device, every sacrifice, every apology, both personally and through friends and relatives, not sparing gifts in order to regain their former love. So I think this sort of builds upon what we were talking about here. The time is short, run as those who've been called by God. And so right from the beginning, John wants to clarify who it is that we are serving and seeking and responding to. And he holds up these parallels for us that, you know, if we were to respond called by a king, we would respond with a kind of immediacy, knowing that the king would expect uh, an exact accounting of what we've done and what we've ac accomplished. Or I think even the more powerful image is that robbers are often dissuaded from fulfilling their, their, their task, their desire by the barking of a dog. They're fearful of a beast. And yet often we in the spiritual life, we will, the, the fear of God will not be something that turns us back from engaging in a particular behavior that is contrary to his will. And similarly, that we will respond to broken relationships with friends with so much more anxiety and energy in order to repair it uh, than we are, than we would in our relationship with God, that we are over willing, so willing to overlook so many different things in our, our life that are a wound to love itself or a, a scorning of that love that is so freely offered to us and not give it a second thought. And so John is putting one image before us after another to say there has to be something different about the way that we enter into this enterprise, if you will, and that it is unlike anything that we enter into in this world. We are not simply building something in accord with our own judgment. We're not responding even to something that would be comparable to worldly loves. We're calling we're being called to enter into something and a gift of love that has been given to us unconditionally and that, uh, that is eternal. We've been given what is most precious in, in the eyes of God. And our response to that reality should be every bit as unconditional and complete. 
that there's nothing more precious, in other words, that God has to give us. He's given us the perfect love of his son. And so going back to that gospel passage of Christ calling the apostles or the stories where those who begin to make excuses free themselves from the charge of that call, he says, no, let, let the dead bury the dead. You have standing before you he who is life. He was the source of life. And so why are you turning back and clinging to that which eventually will perish? That our, our hope, our life, our love, our salvation is found in Christ. And so right as we enter into this, the ascetical life, having this clarity becomes ever so important. Otherwise, it becomes what we've so often talked about in the past, you know, a kind of endurance. And we've seen the distortions of this in the Evergatinos. You remember the ascetic, you know, that he becomes very proud because he's so, uh, uh, so uh, disciplined in his life that he tells one of his fellow monks to go in obedience and to walk across this river filled with crocodiles. And, you know, and the brother is untouched and comes back and uh, they find a guy who's on the side of the road dead. And they, they say, well, that, well, instead of just covering him up, why don't we pray over him? And the dead man rises to life. And they get back to the monastery. And the, the ascetic is rebuked by the elder because of his pride, that his asceticism was so self-centered and so filled with pride, so focused upon the self and so lacking in love, so much that he would put his brother in harm's way, that he becomes deluded. And really, the, the dead man rises because of the perfect obedience that is in conformity to the obedience of Christ himself. This is why the dead man is, rise, is raised. And so, similarly, I think John is trying to give us this clear lens to, to look at the, through which to view the ascetical life that it, from the beginning, it doesn't become a self-centered enterprise because eventually that will fail if we're laboring under our own strength or our own judgment. There's going to be come a time in our life where we feel completely weak or when things seem completely unreasonable to us, where we can't wrap our minds around what God is doing or where he's leading us. And what is it that's going to draw us forward at that point when those, those things fail us? Ren. And then I see some others have put up questions here, but Ren is the one who obediently put up her hand. So, okay, my mind is also turned to the man found, uh, the man found building a barn on the night he is going to die. Yes, and to Christ speaking of the destruction of the physical temple and the enduring nature of the temple of his body. Everything in the New Testament and here in this chapter points us towards a less earthly, less secure in one sense way and towards total abandonment to the person of Christ. Excellent, you know, wonderful summation. I think of what we've been sort of laboring here to wrap our minds around that uh, I think it's spot on, you know, and especially when we connect it with, or the, the images from the gospel that, that you put forward here. I think these are exactly the, the kinds of lessons that Christ was, was trying to teach within, within the gospel. And if you think about it, the temple and all of its glory, you know, I, I don't know if you read much of the temple in Jerusalem, but from a distance, you know, because of the mar marble uh, on its facing, that it looked like a snow-capped mountain. And there were these huge clusters of gold uh, grapes that were of ornamentation and the doors of the temple itself uh, were gilded with gold that would shine in the sunlight so brilliantly that someone would have to look away. And so as Jesus and the, the apostles come up on Jerusalem and they see the temple in the distance, the apostles are marveling over what they're seeing. And, you know, it's, he tells them, you know, I don't know if it's at that point or eventually that, you know, not one stone will be left upon another. The, the temple in all of its glory eventually will come to dust. 
that as Ren said in her comment, that what endures is, and what will be raised to eternal life is, you know, uh, our, our humanity in Christ. It's, I would just want to go back a little bit here and make sure I didn't miss any. Uh, let's see. Well, I'm sorry. A lot of people were typing in things here. So everyone is needed in the Lord's kingdom. My wife and I have benefited greatly from Bishop Barron and Father Schmitz, Father Dave Pavanka, et cetera. Um, hold on for one second. Okay, I see some conversation there about when one contrasts the phenomenon against what St. John Climacus seems to point to some concerning implications as to the spirit, as to how current and future generations of Catholics might be formed, if not checked. Okay, I see, you know, so some of the conversation that's going on here in the chat room is how often we talk about the action of the spirit in our lives. And, uh, and often, you know, some of the language surrounding it is so different, I think, with what we are being presented with here in John Climacus. And this is what uh, I think, uh, I'm sorry, I think it was Sam who draws attention to it. Uh, you know, a kind of, there can be a sort of worldly mindedness, a cult of personality that can emerge. And there is always a danger of that. Even in modern times, we've seen very, uh, various individuals, not, and we don't need to name any, but certainly it's happened multiple times where they become the focus because of certain personal charisms, talents, abilities, they become the focus in such a strong way that it overshadows the message. And so I see what Sam is saying here that, you know, there can be this kind of danger in the spiritual life on multiple levels where in our pride, we will want to put ourselves forward. That ego is something that we always struggle with in one way or another. And we want the self wants to, to take center stage again. Uh, this is part of what pride does for us uh, and has done to us from the, the very beginning. You know, eat of the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be open, you'll know good and evil for yourself, and you'll be like gods. And, you know, we're not incapable of being deluded in the spiritual life uh, to begin to see uh, asceticism and the practices of, of asceticism as being a reflection, again, more of, of our greatness rather than the action of God's grace within our lives. And over and over again, and so the, the point is well taken, over and over again, uh, I think we've seen this throughout church history, where the gospel is lost and Christ is lost, you know, because we will put ourselves forward or, or put things in this world forward as se seemingly necessary for the spiritual life. You know, whether it's technology, you know, more and more money to do things in a grander and grander way. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, studying psychoanalysis a little bit, you sort of being keyed into a few little things, you know, sublimation is a pretty powerful thing for us as human beings. And a lot of the energy that is caught up in some of our desires as human beings can be sublimated. You know, it's a kind of defense mechanism and we aren't even aware, consciously aware of it, but it can be redirected sometimes in positive ways, many times in negative ways. But one of the positive ways is to building, building things. And so often, so often many of the grand structures that we, we build or projects that we take on in the name of Christ or in the name of the church can often have more to do with us than they have to do with, with Christ. And on the surface level, they can seem very powerful, important, essential for the life of the church. And uh, for some of you who are new to this group, uh, there's this old story I heard about Benedict Rochelle. Do, do most of you know who he is? He's a, uh, he founded the uh, Franciscan Friars of the Renewal here in the United States, author, spiritual author as well. But he writes, he tells this little story that when they began their ministry in New York, in New York they went into 
you know, into sort of the slums or the ghetto area and they build like a youth center and they spend all this time, labor, money, getting to know the community. They finish the project. And the night after the project is finished, it's vandalized. And everything within inside is destroyed. And so they go in and Father Benedict is weeping over the site of this, you know, what they had spent so much time and energy doing. And one of the New York cops in their typical way says, well, you, what do you think, Father? You know, just because you come in here and build something that everybody's going to jump on, on board with your agenda, with what you're trying to accomplish. And the cop was right. You know, you know the, simply by our building something, it's not necessarily going to bring about a change of heart in individuals. And so we have to be very careful. You know, what brings about this change of heart is Christ and faith is a gift. We can't argue people into the, the faith, nor can we buy them into the faith by giving them, you know, one thing after another or providing them with one thing after another. In a very real way, we have to become Christ and bear witness to him and the nature of our selfless love. And, uh, and even there, it can't be a condescending kind of thing, you know, in, in terms of what Christ tells us. It's he who makes, is willing to make himself a slave and a servant to others, who's the greatest in the, in the kingdom. You know, it's by becoming the servant of others in love that tr true transformation takes place. And I think sometimes we get into this very uh, worldly, secularized view of things and how running the church like a business and you know, coming up with new and better programs, writing another book. You know, how many thousands of books are there out there? Sorry to every author who might be writing a, a book at this point, but uh, you know, I don't mean to insult you. But uh, you know, we haven't even read all these, you know, fathers, and we're we're writing new things as if we are coming up with them on our own for the first first time. And so again, you know, I'm yammering on here and I don't want to slow us down, but, you know, again, he wants us to have very clearly in our sights, Christ. And it is this love and desire for him and what he alone can offer us that it has to be the motivating thing for us. Otherwise we aren't going to get up too far up the ladder. Fear is going to make us quit. Desire for reward is eventually going to show itself foolhardy because in this world, you know, as men and women of faith, we are not going to receive the world's love and respect. In fact, just the opposite. We should expect nothing other than what Christ himself experienced and received within this world. And John would have us no, have no illusions about that. Okay, so moving on to paragraph 16. And in the very beginning of our renunciation, it is certainly with labor and grief that we practice the virtues. But when we have made progress in them, we no longer feel sorrow or we feel little sorrow and, uh, or feel little sorrow. But as soon as our mortal mind is consumed and mastered by our zeal, we practice them with all joy and eagerness, with love and with divine fire. So, you know, again, John would have us have no illusions that our struggle with the passions and our struggle against temptations is going to be very difficult. The road ahead is going to be very hard, and especially early on, there will be great sorrow because we are very attached you know, to, to the things that have satisfied us on so many different levels for years and decades, perhaps. And so uprooting those are, will be no easy thing to do. Uh, but he says, eventually that sorrow will give way and be consumed uh, by something far greater, you know, by this love of God and will bear the fruit of joy for us. And we'll see in the next paragraph that you know, for a person who labors 
and does not experience that joy in the ascetical life. And this is, again, the surprising thing to, to read and why there's a value in reading closely John uh, in the way that we're doing is that he's, he's telling us that, you know, this vision that perhaps we've had of the ascetics of being these miserable grouches in the desert, you know, these harsh grizzled figures is a false image that really the, the truer image of one who through the ascetic life get, is giving themselves over to Christ should be one of joyfulness, freedom, true freedom as human beings, as God has created us. And so John will go over, and when we just go on and read it here in paragraph 17, those who at once from the very outset follow the virtues and fulfill the commandments with joy and alacrity certainly deserve praise. And in the same way, those who spend a long time in asceticism and still find it wearisome, in, in, find it a weary weariness to obey the commandments, if they obey them at all, certainly deserve pity. So a person who labors for many different years and does not see that fruit of their asceticism, a fruit of, if that asceticism is not leading them deeply into this relationship of love with God and does not become driven more and more by love, then they are to be the most pitied of individuals because they are laboring and they're disciplining themselves, depriving themselves, and they simply know misery. And, you know, this is why the fathers will often tell us that, you know, the ascetical life without prayer is destined to descend into great despondency because what the ascetical life will reveal to us is our poverty, our sin our weakness. And if this is all that we become aware of and focused upon, we are going to fall into a kind of spiritual depression. When we lose sight of, of the love of God, the mercy of God, but also what he desires to give us, what he's drawing us into. Uh, whereas we might struggle mightily in the spiritual life, and we might even fall repeatedly over the course of years, but if we are struggling and our focus upon Christ, even if we are falling and repenting every single day, still the fruit of that struggle should be a greater joy and hope in God and trust in his, in his mercy. And so a good way of sort of examining, you know, our spiritual life and how we are entering into it is exactly through, I think, what John is pointing to here. And why Philip Neary, our founder, you know, would say over and over again, melancholy, melancholy, you have no place in my house. Gaudete semper, rejoice always, is the motto of the oratory. And for, I think the reasons, and he was steeped in John Climacus, so he read Climacus as well as Cassian and knew this, that, you know, if there is a kind of moroseness in our life, and if we are engaging in the spiritual life in a way that there is this perpetual sadness, we know that something is off, that we've lost sight of something essential. We've lost sight of the love, love of Christ. And, uh, you know, now he'll, he'll uh, qualify what he says here uh, about the individual who, who do, lacks this joy. Uh, you know, I think it's more compassion than pitying them, again, in a condescending way, I think we would have compassion in the sense of, of, of acknowledging the fact that they've lost sight of something essential here. But John contrasts them, again, so strikingly, in order that we might enter into the spiritual life with a kind of clarity, the, the joy and this growing desire for God is the, the thing that shows us that we are on the right path. Okay, let me just look back at some of the... Anthony, and it came to dust because it was intended to receive the Messiah, but when the Messiah was rejected, the earthly glory was dismissed, right? It is a warning for our cathedrals and basilicas as well. Yes, 
you know, and I think we're seeing that in our own day. You know, so many of the churches closing and how quickly, swiftly, in a generation or two, how, how things can change so, so quickly when we lose sight of Christ and we are not embracing his will and where corruption uh, comes into the life of the church and the gospel's distorted, how quickly things begin to fall, fall apart and how that worldly glory, you know, is so quickly dis diminished. See, number 18, nor let us abhor or condemn the renunciation due merely to circumstances. I've seen men who had fled into exile meet the emperor by accident when he was on tour and then join his company, enter his palace and dine with him. I've seen seed casually fall on the earth and bear plenty of thriving fruit. I've seen the opposite too. I've also seen a person come to a hospital with some other motive, but the courtesy and kindness of the physician overcame him. And on being treated with an astringent, he got rid of the darkness that lay on his eyes. Thus for some, the unintentional was stronger and more sure than what was intentional in others. And this is another way of saying that, you know, it's not, always going to be something that works out in a neat fashion in the way that we predict. And that some, sometimes, in some ways, God can draw us on an unintentional path where he then brings about healing for us. And so these examples, I think here, again, are so clear and magnificent. You know, coming and accidentally stumbling upon the emperor, and then all of a sudden you find yourself having dinner with the emperor, or entering into a hospital for a minor problem, and having a doctor who is attentive, being able to cure a greater affliction, to cure, you know, the blindness, because he's able to, to see what's going on and act like the physician and surgeon that he is in order to heal the individual. So again, you know, all of this calls us to this kind of, of radical abandonment to God and to allow ourselves in the spiritual life to, to be led by Christ, to keep our focus upon him and not be under the illusion that the ascetical life is self-help and so often, I think the spiritual life can be turned into that, that we can sort of gravitate to these things because they'll bring us peace or they'll free us from anxiety or our life will become so ordered that, you know, we'll, you know, that uh, we'll see this, again, this worldly fruit. And I'll tell you, entering into the spiritual life rarely brings that about. Usually you find that entering into the relationship with Christ, all of a sudden things in your life start going south. And because, you know, when that's, you're often attacked by the evil one, the moment there's a kind of fervor for God that begins to emerge, a depth of prayer, all of a sudden, all these obstacles become, you know, put in our way, or we, we begin, our, or that faith itself is, is tested in order that it might mature in some way or another. And so we can't look at the spiritual life as a kind of self-help where we're just doing, if you just do these things, everything will be better. And, you know, I think that is often sometimes the hope that we have, uh, even about Lent, which we're in now. You know, if, if, if I do these particular things for 40 days, then something good will happen. You know, I'll be freed of this great passion or, or, you know, I'll pass this exam or, you know, get this raise or whatever it might be, or this illness, I'll be freed of this illness if I just keep to this discipline for long enough. And again, there's a kind of distortion there because there's a, a loss of, of the sight of, of Christ and of love. Okay, there's just a couple comments here and then we'll wrap things up. Rachel writes, I wonder at the examples of monks who fell away because of the lack of clarity, Father Abernathy speaking of, of a few minutes ago, the clarity speaks of, 
of seems to be one received at every moment from our Lord through union with him and whatever degree or capacity we are able to in that moment. In relation to St. John Climacus, we will be pulled down by fears manifested in different idols and desires. The labor and grief also seem to be the pain that comes from the divine sculptor chipping away at our illusions of self and more importantly, God himself, right? You know, that often we enter into the spiritual life with a certain image of God in mind and allowing that to be shaped by God himself, allowing him to reveal himself to, to us as he is, really does mean a setting aside of the self and our own judgment. In fact, when we look at somebody in the West, like John of the Cross, uh, you know, when he talks about walking in the darkness of faith, he speaks of faith as a dark, obscure knowing. It's a kind of comprehension that allows God to reveal himself to us as he is in himself. That, you know, our reason, our, our intellect, our imagination are finite. And so no matter how developed a view or mature image of God that we might have through our meditation over the course of years, we all eventually have to walk that path of dark, obscure faith, not because God is punishing us, but because he's drawing us into this deeper intimacy with him, again, that we might experience him as he is in himself. So we have to, to let go of that which is less uh, and allow ourselves to be drawn into what is the fullness. And John tells us this is like, he, he describes it as ligature, a break, like a break of a bone uh, for us to be able to do that, to, to let go of the things that perhaps even helped us in the spiritual life and drew us forward. And I think similarly, John is, is doing some comparable things here. Andrea and Anthony. Listening to the story about Franciscan whose gift to the poor was destroyed by them before they could benefit, should we draw the conclusion that building on a large scale for others is always a mistake and a way of self-aggrandizement? For example, should Pope St. John Paul the Great not have started any of the big projects uh, he started, such as World Youth Day, visiting so many countries, the work of the Catechism, Theology of the Body, should St. Teresa of Calcutta have not built any of our homes to the poor? And, you know, my answer to that would be no, you know, it's, we're not called to a kind of pacifism where we sit on our hands, but all that we do must begin and end with God and be, be guided by him and his providence. And so, you know, even those who are saintly souls have to search their heart and discern well, seek the guidance and counsel of others because a kind of willfulness can enter into even the best of things. Uh, and uh, even that which is good and virtuous has to be perfected by the grace of God. And so how something is done and what it ultimately might uh, come to be might look much different <clears throat> when it's done in accord with the will of God and by his grace in a sense of responding to his grace and action in our life. And uh, that requires a kind of humility, patience, a willingness to listen to God on this very deep level, and to at times have the things that we put forward come to naught. You know, in humility to be able to say, okay, this is not the opportune time, or in the providence of God, even though this is a beautiful thing, and even though this is something I would desire in, with all of my heart, maybe it's not going to bear fruit for my salvation or the salvation of others. And so even that which is good has to be laid before God for his blessing or his judgment. And that includes for John Paul II and Teresa of Calcutta. You know, and I, I bet you if you talk to either one of them, they would tell you that they made many mistakes in their life or that they were willful at various times in their life and were only shown by God through certain things 
that took place in their life, what the, the truer path forward was. You know, I'm sure there were, you know, Mother Teresa experienced incredible darkness for 25 years. John Paul was shot, you know, and so I'm sure he wasn't necessarily expecting that to take, take place either. And, but I'm sure all those, those things really did form and shape how both of them listened to God and ultimately is what made them saints. So I have us at 8.35 and we're going to stop there. That was a lot uh, to listen to and to absorb. So go back over and read it. You know, again, I'm not uh, offering a definitive interpretation of, of any of this. And so anything that you would want to add later or talk about, feel free uh, to, to send it or bring it and put it into the next chat. Okay. So when we close there, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.